0: everyone, to Andy Here's the 80s, the show where we try to find the best albums from the 1980s. Here in Season 2, we examine the work of a different artist or band each episode, and this time we are listening to the five studio albums of Game Theory, as well as the compilation of the band's final recordings, which was released just earlier this year in 2020. Joining me, as always, is my co-host Aaron Keck. How are you doing, Aaron?
1: I'm good. How are you?
0: I'm doing good. You know, uh, for a long time, these albums in any form were pretty hard to come by, but uh, and then, in twenty fourteen, omnivore recordings began releasing these remastered deluxe editions, which tons of bonus tracks and extensive liner notes. Uh, and as they started coming out, that's really the first time that I started hearing about these guys. Uh, did you have any uh, knowledge of them beforehand?
1: I had never heard of this band before. Am I like, uh, we've we've covered a couple of bands so far in this season that I've barely heard of or mm-hmm. I had gotten wind of but hadn't really. Encountered or listened to to any degree whatsoever, this band no knowledge at all. I had no idea who these guys were, which is interesting because I, I think we'll we'll talk about this like i'm like i'm here in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and there is quite a close connection with some with some mm-hmm. folks uh, between this band and some folks that are very, very big in the Chapel Hill music scene, so uh, cool that I, I got to listen to them, but yeah, no, I'd never heard of them before.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's, this is one when I was putting together the season that I was kind of excited for because they were the per, the band I knew the least about, right? Mm-hmm. And it seems like a lot of people probably don't know about them, so I was excited to dig in and kind of discover them like we try to do here. Uh, but wh- while you were listening, was there anything that kind of jumped out that you found them similar to for other people that haven't heard them before?
1: There were a couple of REM moments. They're very... Mm-hmm. I mean, there's definitely an affinity. I mean, they've, they've literally got a song called What's the Frequency, Kenneth, which w- <laughs> which they were first on, which was nice. I didn't know that. Right. Michael Stipe was just ripping them off, apparently, mm-hmm. but... Uh, but yeah, there's. I mean, it's it's definitely got that power pop vibe. Um, Mitch Easter is the is the the guy that I was referring to, who's right. got a, a Chapel Hill connection. He started a band in the early '80s called Let's Active, which is still kind of a seminal band in the Chapel Hill music scene. And then he went on to be a pretty significant producer. He worked with REM and he worked with uh, he worked with Game Theory. And we'll we'll talk about Mitch Easter a lot probably in the in the next few minutes, but. Mm-hmm just kind of that whole oeuvre. So every band that Mitch Easter touches has kind of that similar vibe. So I'm listening to this and I'm getting a little bit of Let's Active. I'm getting a little bit of R.E.M. So one song in particular... um I think it's Regenus Rain actually that really reminded me of R.E.M in a couple of different ways. I wasn't sure if it was South Central Rain or Fall on Me that I was thinking of and I went back and listened to both of them and now I don't think I was thinking of either <laughs> of those at all but right. it's definitely definitely a a power pop R.E.M vibe coming out of this uh coming out of this band. But I think it's more of a Mitch Easter thing than anything else.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. I think it's probably helpful too with um you know if we took a second to kind of define the term power pop because it's kind of a it's a very music term that I feel like isn't necessarily helpful without much context but it's one that we I was fine are certainly when using. it comes to
1: music terms like I have no idea how to explain it but if you play something for me and say this is grunge I'll listen to it and be like yep yeah that that makes sense this right. is power pop yep I get it yeah this is country yes I hear the steel guitar <laughs>
0: <laughs> there's there's actually a great piece by uh, Noel Murray at the AV Club that digs into the history and evolution of power pop. Uh, and he kind of describes it uh, with the roots being found kind of in 60s doo-wop and girl groups. And then that sound gets kind of adopted by early rock and roll bands like uh, the Birds, the Kinks, and of course the Beatles. Uh, and that early Beatles sound, you know, I'm thinking like help and earlier is kind of foundational power pop, I feel like, which is certainly a touchstone for game theory as well.
1: I gotta throw the word jangle in there as well, I feel. There's
0: some jangle, certainly, as the eighties come in. Uh I think uh that you know, that sound evolved into the seventies with uh artists and groups like Elvis Costello and Cheap Trick. I think uh the song Surrender from Cheap Trick has always been like a power pop touchstone for me. That's the sound I always think of when I hear power pop. Uh and then of course uh groups like uh Big Star is one that gets associated with a lot, but also has the unfortunate you know, circumstance of not being that widely known. So it's not necessarily a helpful touchstone if you've never heard of them either. But uh, yeah, that's kind of the, it's kind of a driving pop sound, very guitar driven, jangly, like you said, but still very catchy and hook driven too. Mm -hmm. I think of, you know, one of the maybe, Modern and I'm probably generously Considering the modern at this point but I think one of the most Modern <laughs> uh, like contemporary... This is about to be the oldest
1: you've ever <laughs> yeah. Been in your life so tread li- tread Lightly
0: <laughs> Well I think maybe one of the most successful Power pop bands recently is maybe Weezer I feel like they are probably From the you know 90s and 2000s Bringing that power pop sensibility To a more mainstream audience Like I said not necessarily Modern today it's 2020 Then the Blue Album came out almost 30 years ago now but that's more modern than uh the 70s or 80s
1: that's true yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay you, you can't say that we're gonna
1: have to do another season called andy here's the 21st century
0: <laughs> i know yeah probably but uh you know all of that to say that's the kind of wheelhouse the game theory is working in here that kind of sound uh that uh you know wide appeal by definition almost power pop pop music is generally considered appealing right but they never really found that audience uh, that a lot of other groups did and so they remained It's because a lot secure. of
1: power pop is like power pop and jangle pop has has a tendency to be not simple but not simple but basic if that makes sense mm-hmm. like power chords a lot of major chords like not necessarily a whole lot of experimentation or crazy innovation with the the way the songs are produced or or what goes into them still very good musically and very talented musically but not necessarily trying to be like Coltrane either Uh, and I I think uh, I think game theory might have had higher musical ambitions and that leads them into places that maybe aren't necessarily going to be top of the pop charts but uh, but that's just the theory. That's just a theory. I don't, I don't know.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well said. No pun th- intended. Yeah. Maybe that could be true. I think you know they are. Perhaps more complex than the general pop group, but maybe not as complex, not even complex enough to be considered, you know, high-minded prog rock or something like that.
1: Yeah, Yeah. I I don't know. And I I say that and then I think of all of the R.E.M. songs that we've talked about that are very complex and do innovative things and also are extremely popular. So Mm -hmm. I know a lot of a lot of my experience listening to Game Theory was going, man, you know, who's a really great band is R.E.M.? (laughs) Not because game theory is bad, and we'll we'll talk about them. Like I liked the I liked the music that came out of this band. But, it's one of those where, and I think we've talked about it in, in previous ep- episodes of, of this this podcast, where you don't really appreciate how great an Olympic athlete is until you see another athlete in the same sport who is very good at what they do, but you watch them and they're clearly not the same like super caliber of the Olympic athlete. You're like, wow, mm-hmm. that person can run and jump 28 feet. Like, that's fantastic. Um, that was what I got with Game Theory. Like, this was a really good band that put out a lot of really good stuff, and it made me appreciate the, like, great power pop and the great jangle pop of that much more.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's fair. Well, let's dig into them. Uh, Scott Miller, the singer, was born in Sacramento, California in 1960, an only child who became interested in groups like the Beatles and the Monkees during his childhood. And inspiring him to take up the guitar and begin trying his hand at songwriting. And so in high school in 1977, as Scott was a senior, he recruited a couple friends, Joseph Becker and uh, Scott Gallagher, into a band called Alternate Learning. They recorded an EP together before Scott headed off to UC Davis for college, put together a new Alternate Learning lineup with Carolyn O'Rourke, Bill Miller, and Eric Landers, who would record a full-length called Painted Windows, released in '82. And that group disbanded shortly after that album's release. So Scott assembled a different set of classmates into a new band and christened them Game Theory. Uh, Fred Juhos on bass, Mike Irwin on drums, Nancy Becker on keyboards, who was the sister of original alternate learning member Joseph Becker. They played a couple house parties around town, were happy with the way the band was meshing. Uh, And then there's a quote from a future member, Donette Thayer, when she was describing Scott's inspiration for the name of the band, saying... Uh, He thought game theory was a fascinating concept because it, quote, attempts to quantize human behavior and how human behavior is so fluid that it cannot really be predicted. So that's already kind of an indication of some of the deceptively high-minded thinking that he would bring uh, to this music.
1: And I got to say, as someone who went through grad school in political science and kind of was forced to be exposed to game theory, uh, accurate.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so about six months of playing together with this lineup they went into the quote rational sound lab which as far as i can tell is just a euphemism for scott's parents basement and recorded the first full (laughs) length they
1: uh, also accurate
0: (laughs) yeah they uh put this full-length album together of game theory material called blaze of glory releasing it in 1982 i'm going to play the song the young drug and then we will talk about the album time listening to this album i was a little weary based on the first couple songs but then once i hit this one this is where i think the album turned for me and i was i was getting more into it
1: the album for me did not turn um (laughs) well like game theory turns for me with album number two this album just has the feeling of trying out new things and mm-hmm. and figuring out what works but nothing nothing in particular about this album stood out to me or or is memorable in any way unfortunately
0: i think it's definitely a you know a first album right i mean you know yeah. you had a couple a couple recordings with alternate learning uh, some of which are included as bonus tracks on this uh cd um but yeah this is i think The thing that stood out to me on this is that I don't I don't think the keyboard is fully integrated to the band. Right. It feels Mm -hmm. a little superfluous and a little distracting in some songs. Uh, But I think there are still solid songwriting pieces on here. I think um, uh, it gives me chills. I really liked a lot and stupid Heart" as well. I think the whole second half for me, I think, was a lot stronger than the first half.
1: What did you think about Mary Magdalene? Because that was was my favorite off of this one.
0: Yeah, I like that one too. And that is one that Scott That was kind of early on. Yeah, and Scott would point to that one later too as being like one of the first moments where it started to click with him what this band was going to be like, right? Mm -hmm. So that was an early touchstone that he found was working well. And yeah, I think that's a good one too.
1: That's also one of the kind of quieter songs Mm -hmm. on this album and one that doesn't like incorporate as many instrument so maybe maybe just the the simpler was the the best at at this stage of the game i don't know
0: yeah it was probably easy to overthink it as far as production went especially if they're doing it themselves in their basement you know throw as much at the wall as you can and see what sticks that's that's the vibe i got from some of these songs i think
1: tell me a band that names itself game theory is prone to overthinking it
0: <laughs> yeah i uh, know no indication beforehand that be absolutely
1: case, right? none whatsoever
0: Well, they got about a thousand copies of this pressed, packaged them themselves in white trash bags and glued the cover to the front and sold it to local record stores. And so that was the first time a lot of people would hear this uh, game theory sound around town. Uh, But they played together uh, for some, you know, Northern California shows. They're not traveling very far at this point to promote the album. Uh, They opened up for a couple bands who came to town like Pylon and the English Beat well as playing some gigs for local radio stations, Uh, drummer Mike Irwin would leave the band uh, to move out of state, and that vacancy would be filled by Dave Gill, who was not only a talented drummer, but also co-owned a recording studio, Samurai Sound Labs in Davis. Uh, With Gill in the lineup, the band recorded two EPs, uh, Pointed Accounts of People You Know in 83, and Distortion in 84, Uh, distortion being produced by... Uh, Michael Corsio of the band The Three O'Clock, whose name will come up again later. Uh, But those EPs were compiled onto a single album released in Europe as Dead Center, and all three of those have been re-released as part of the Omnivore uh, reissue campaign, the EPs on vinyl and Dead Center on CD, as well as streaming. Uh, But they refined their sound, I think, during that period and got some semi-professional recording studio time in, and so that led them to signing with the California-based label Enigma Records, and allowed them to book the aforementioned Mitch Easter to produce their next album. Uh, He had his own band, as we mentioned, Let's Active from Winston-Salem, North Carolina, had just produced R.E.M.'s Chronic Town EP, as well as co-produced Murmur and Reckoning by this point with uh, Don Dixon. Uh, So Mitch flew out to California where he and the band worked out of Montage Recording Studio, and then he and Scott went back to Easter's home studio, the drive-in, to do the final mixing. And the result is Real Nighttime, released in 1985. I'll play a little of the song Waltz the Halls Always, and then we will discuss the album.
1: I like this album a lot. I'm glad you picked this song because it's it's my favorite one off of the album as well. I think this I think this is a huge step up from Blaze of Glory.
0: Yeah, super huge step forward. Not just in production, but I think the band meshes together a lot better. I think the songwriting is even better. I think it's just a fun start to finish album too. But yeah, this song in particular I, I really liked. It was also one of my favorites. I think. Uh, the... I don't this one was like almost night and day I think compared to uh, Blaze of Glory.
1: Oh, yeah, 100%. Although I will say that one of my favorite songs off of Real Nighttime is the the song that ends the album which is Like a Girl Jesus, which is another kind of slow, quiet, not a whole lot of instrumentation. So I'm, I'm still going in the the Mary Magdalene vibe. <laughs> Actually, Like a Girl Jesus and Mary Magdalene are kind of good. Right titles that pair against each other fairly well as well uh yeah um so I, I think i'm in the same vibe of what kind of scott miller songs i like but in terms of the the whole album uh this is a huge step forward
0: well like a girl jesus i think closes out the next one but uh the big shot chronicles ends with like a girl jesus i'm pretty sure does it mm-hmm.
1: oh you're right i turned her away is the the end of this one
0: yeah which is a good song, too. I think that's a good close. It is a good
1: song. I completely had uh, had the wrong thing written down here.
0: There are some good uh, low-key songs on here, too. I think um, If and When It Falls Apart, I think that's a good slower yes. kind of ballady song. Uh, but the ones I like the most, I love Waltz the Hall Always, I love 24, um, and Friend of the Family, too, I think is a great song.
1: 24, 24, and we'll get to uh, Erica's song later, which is another mm-hmm. kind of one of their bigger hits off of a different album. Like the, the the couple of big, like quote unquote hits that this band had, they didn't jump out at me as much as other songs did. I don't know why.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think it is, it's hard to pick a single necessarily. I yes. think I almost yeah. would have put, if I was going to pick a single, I might've chosen Waltz of the Halls always. I feel like that has, it's very catchy and has a great hook. And I think would fit in alongside other, you know, college radio staples of the time.
1: Oh, for sure. I but mean, yeah. as far as college radio goes, like most of the the stuff off of this album would fit right in.
0: Mm-hmm. But yeah, this one, I think there's a great variety here. And it does, it continues what becomes a tradition now of starting off all of their albums with kind of weird sound collage things. Even on Blaze of Glory, there's a little vocal clip at the start as the drums come in. This one yep. here, here comes everybody starts off the album before twenty four kicks in. Uh, yeah, I think it's just a, it's a great start to finish album.
1: Although I will say for uh, for starting the album off with here comes everybody, like I I understand that Scott Miller wants us to be aware <laughs> that he's familiar with Finnegan's Wake, but I'm not mm-hmm. impressed, Scott. I'm not. <laughs> the song has nothing to do with anything.
0: Yeah, we we have a knack for choosing very literary front for people for these <laughs> bands. So between him and uh, and the fall and X, there's lots of lots of reading going on during these tours.
1: Or maybe skimming. I don't know about. I don't know about <laughs> anyone who claims to have read *Finnegans
0: Wake*. <laughs> yeah, he said it's funny. He has a or he had a column that he would, you know, answer fan mail with online, and somebody that he would often get a lot of books about or questions about books, and and a few people mentioned *Finnegans Wake*, and he said, "Well, it is one of my favorites. I have to put an asterisk anytime I recommend it to anybody because I don't know if it's yeah. necessarily worth reading the whole book."
1: Do not read this book. <laughs>
0: Uh, But these would be the last recordings actually from that lineup uh, as Scott would move to San Francisco after this and recruited drummer Gil Ray, bassist Susie Ziegler, and keyboardist Shelley Lafreniere into the fold. And they all learned the old material. Shelley even bought uh, Nancy Becker's keyboard from her. And before too long, they were learning another batch of songs that Scott had been working on They embark on a Tour of the States. Uh, in the summer of 85 with a plan for a two-week stop in winston-salem to record their third album over at the drive-in with mitch easter Uh, they then finish up the rest of the tour head back to california and scott then flew back in november to mix the album with mitch resulting in their third studio album the big shot chronicles released on enigma in 1986 i'll play a little bit of erica's word and then we'll be back to talk about the album
1: It's a really good song off of this album, "Like a Girl, Jesus."
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a it's a strong closer. It's I would say.
1: and it really like it really situates the this particular album in my head. Like when I think of "Like a Girl, Jesus," I'm like, "Yep, Big Shot Chronicles." That's the one right there, <laughs> Un-
0: unmistakable. They're like they Un- unmistakable. <laughs> yeah. But this one, we kind of uh, we kind of alluded to it earlier. But this was kind of a single that was pushed very slightly by the label. They had a music video produced, um, and which kind of uh, made the rounds on like 120 minutes on MTV, uh, and it did, as uh, Scott would say, elevated them from local obscurity to national obscurity. So it did result <laughs> in uh, Big Shot Chronicles selling better than their previous albums, but still you know still relative uh among all sales
1: did 120 minutes exist on mtv at this point i don't i don't know when they started running that show
0: am i i guess it was probably in like 85 86 right I don't maybe know. it, do, I don't it know. does feel I'll, like i, I nine remember
1: nine, being but. in high school and and watching it uh but that was later i don't know when it started
0: maybe maybe it became a you know their best-selling album it's six seven years afterwards but oh, knows, it may, but.
1: it may well have yeah
0: but I think at the time it still was, you know, more successful than their last two. I mean, obviously, but more than the first one, it only had a thousand copies printed. But I think uh, this was getting more and more college play around the country, especially as they toured the country more. But uh, he, he estimated, too, in that in his Ask Scott uh, fan mail correspondence online that uh, across all of his albums, uh, across all bands, he estimates that probably every album sold somewhere between five and 15,000 copies. So we're still not talking huge numbers.
1: 1986 was when 120 minutes started. That is way earlier than <laughs> I thought it was going to.
0: So yeah. So then this would have been one of its first. One of videos. the earliest
1: ones, yeah. yeah. I only early. I only know the Matt Pinfield years. I don't I don't know the early stuff.
0: Yeah, I had a uh, a compilation album at some point, which which yeah was probably from like nineteen ninety four or something like that.
1: Yeah. That'd be a great album.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was good. Uh but yeah this is i mean speaking of good albums i think big shot chronicles is, is also a pretty good album uh which was aside from like a girl jesus what other were some of your favorites on here
1: uh, I've tried subtlety, which uh, which yeah. kicks off the album is really good, and I also I already mentioned Regenus Rain, which is going to be up there on my my list of favorites. Maybe because of the REM vibe from that particular song, and also maybe because like Scott, like the one thing that I I have against Scott Miller in this band is the fact that very often uh, Scott and his songwriting has a tendency to go out of his way to remind you of how well read he is, but doesn't really have a whole lot to say other than just kind of making a reference and leaving it, th- leaving it at that. Whereas Regenis Rain is uh, an effort to be literary and poetic and, and Joycey and, uh, in a way that I think actually says something and does something, uh, that a lot of the, the other efforts don't necessarily, like, Mm -hmm. I think making up the word regenis Rain and making that the refrain in the chorus, like, that actually does evoke something, um, it's a, it's a good, it's a good word to coin, like, I, I appreciate what he's able to, to achieve just by doing that, and I think he, like, he elevates himself a level with that song
0: yeah i think so too That that is a good one it it made me think uh kind of in a different direction but it made me think of um uh led zeppelin 3 you know which was all very acoustic uh where yeah, like from this yeah. rock band so it, that's kind of the vibe i got from it so maybe if you cross I, I can see that rem with led zeppelin 3 you might get that song
1: No, I think that's I think that's true because I mean I mean what's another what's another literary band is Led yeah. Zeppelin, right? Like, here's a band that goes out of its way to make a whole bunch of literary references, and they're great partly because they do something with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think Scott Miller in that particular song like reaches that level.
0: Yeah, yeah, and we haven't really touched on it, but in in the uh, the liner notes for Big Shot Chronicles, he credits himself. Uh, not as vocals, but as miserable wine. So, what do you think of his vocal style in general?
1: I wouldn't describe it as a miserable <laughs> wine, but you know, yeah. uh, that it's good. <laughs> yeah, I, a, I think it, I don't have a like. It's he's a he's a talented vocalist. He doesn't like if I'm if I'm making a list of my favorite vocalists of all time and i'm listing every single vocalist i've ever heard from top to bottom he would be in the middle i guess mm-hmm.
0: yeah i i thought it was a perfectly fine uh singing voice as well but i think a lot of times people might or people would point to that as that's the limiting factor for them uh is his voice but i don't i didn't really find that to be the case but it, he uh he also did have a quote where he said um You know, people describe Game Theory as a band that grows on you. And he said, I think what they really mean by that is after they get past my voice, they can discover the talent the other band members have, which I thought was pretty funny. But I think it's I think it works for their sound. And and by the after a couple really only that first album, I feel like is is there any kind of problem that, quote unquote, with any of that, because I think he gets to be a pretty good singer by this point. And yeah, so, I,
1: I agree with that. Yeah. I would ne- I would not listen to this band and think, oh, this band would be so much better if not for the crap vocals. Like right. I thought the I thought the vocals fit quite well with the band,
0: mm-hmm. especially on something like Regenerate Rain. I think that's a, re- exactly. a really yeah. great song for for vocals and guitar. But yeah, after that tour in '85, uh, Susie would leave the band, uh, and Donette Thayer, Scott's girlfriend who had moved to San Francisco with him, and knew all the music inside it out by this point, joined the band. And soon after, uh, Guillaume Gasan joined uh, as a full-time bass player and Donette became the second guitar player for the band, making it a five-piece for the first time. And they embark on another U.S. tour. They went into CD Studios in San Francisco then to record a new album. Uh, Scott told Mitch Easter he really wanted to do a double album that people could look back on and say should have been a single album, which uh, is <laughs> aiming right to my heart, really. Which is <laughs>
1: but... every single double album ever made. <laughs>
0: Uh, that double album would be uh, mixed uh, over at Easter's Driving Studios again and then released in December of '87 as Lolita Nation. I'll play the song Chardonnay and then we'll dig into that project.
2: 14 or wine and chardonnay shows what she knows and she decides couldn't tell you now what clicked inside why that's what i'll call hardly for but still reminded that i
0: So yeah, we we mentioned it at the top, but I think the first thing both of us noticed with this one is that first track, Kenneth, what's, what's the frequency? And did a double take and then had to then, of course, remind ourselves Monster came out in 1994.
1: Yeah, let's, And and I was under the impression, I have always been under the impression that dan rather got mugged in the early 90s like the the rem was responding to something that had happened recently but mm-hmm. in fact it had happened many years ago i
0: yeah i know so, so what took what really what took rem so long to write the song the exactly but, right uh but that somebody did eventually ask mitch easter you know being the link between these two bands if uh rem had any you know what, was it a knowing nod to Game Theory or not? And he he said that really he knew of Peter Buck being the only uh, avowed fan of the band, and that Michael very well could have written it without knowing Game Theory had done that. And in fact, just we're both referencing the same thing. But so, and plus the the, the uh, Game Theory song is really just another sound collage intro, not right? But, but yeah, it's certainly a funny coincidence, if if not more,
1: possibly more. Possibly I do know. More. But um, like I would be, I would be inclined to to go along and say, okay, maybe it's just a coincidence. If not for the fact that Mitch Easter is so closely connected with both of these bands, like there's and and the the style is the same and the genre is the same. Like this, I don't buy into too many conspiracy <laughs> theories, but this one, I I think I think what's the frequency, of might have been an inside job.
0: Yeah, maybe. It would be funny to go, you know, be a fly on the wall in the monster recording sessions and uh, find out it really is like Peter looks over at Michael and goes, hey, do you know that uh, you remember Game Theory? He goes, oh, I think so. Yeah, they had a they had a song where they titled it that. Oh, cool. (laughs) (laughs) That's
1: it. And then Moved on. Yeah. Is it as good as ours? Mm, No.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's what I thought. It's
1: it's different. Yeah. It's thirty seconds long. Oh, okay, great.
0: <laughs> but anyway, Chardonnay, which we played before this, I think. I think also that could have been a hit. I think that song's pretty good too.
1: Oh, that one's that one's in my top five. Another really Lolita Nation for me, and I, I think this is probably just in keeping with the fact that it's a double album that could have been a single album. Lolita Nation for me is the most hit or miss of all of these albums. There mm-hmm. are, it's not my favorite. It's not even in my top two, but it is the album that has the most really good songs on it. Chardonnay is certainly one. Uh, Carolyn Allison, which mm-hmm. is another kind of semi-hit of theirs, uh, is also up there. Dripping with Looks is really good, although yeah. I think I, I appreciate that more just for the fact that it sounds so different from Game Theory's typical output. Um I did end up moving it down on my list a bit after after listening to it a couple more times, but uh, it is still a very good song. Like, it's up there on my list anyway.
0: Yeah. Dripping with Books was another one that was also on my list uh, when I was putting it together. Uh, but yeah. just, is just outside the top five. But yeah, I mean, I, I think it does have a lot of their v- very strong songs on here. I think uh, one of my favorites uh, was uh, The Waist and the Knees. That one I thought was a very strong, just experimental, right. but still like just rock song that is that I kept coming back to.
1: Although speaking of experimental, what is your take on the fact that this album also includes what is it, fourteen tracks in a row that are each two second sound clips <laughs> long?
0: Well, that the funny thing is, yeah. So there's the there's the song. It's all on one track here on the CD, uh, right? But and Scott had initially wanted them to all be separate tracks so that you could watch the numbers on the CD player go crazy as it's flipping through all these. But uh, the label decided this is not also to.
1: the album where they they did that in order to screw you up. If you were uh, trying to listen on a on a CD that just like flipped from one random track to another
0: yeah, screw up or just kind of create a different album, because I mean, all like that little montage is like right. little clips of other game theory songs. So it is almost like you're flipping through a radio station looking for another song. So it is, I think the thing about this, so one of the things obviously that's going to jump to mind is the White Album, right? So Scott's a big mm-hmm. Beatles head, and this is a double album with experimental things, just like the White Album. But I think the difference here is that the sound collage here is two minutes rather than Revolution Nine, which is eight minutes long. I think right. that, if anything, you could spread out, and he does. He spreads out a few other little bits and throughout the album. I think that makes it a lot more manageable than the white album, where I literally have never listened to Revolution Nine after the first time because I'm oh, just gonna really? skip it every oh,
1: time. It, oh, it gets better if you haven't <laughs> if you haven't listened to the whole thing, man. After that first minute and a half, it becomes the greatest Beatles song ever made. You are <laughs> missing so much. You really got to devote yourself to the entire eight minutes.
0: Maybe one day I'll I'll try it again, but I don't know.
1: Everyone, everyone, tweet Andy and and back me up on this.
0: But I think also like The Void album for me, it's one that I f- took a minute and thought, yeah, this probably could be one album. But then I tried to reduce it down to a single LP and I there I, it was enough that I didn't want to cut that I was like, oh, well, actually, no, it probably should be a double album in my mind anyway.
1: There is definitely so. Uh, when this album came out as a double album, did it come out as a double LP? Because most of these you could you could cram together on a single CD.
0: Yeah, it ca- it came out as a two LP, but a, a one CD uh, release. Yeah. Okay, well
1: that's that's cheating then, because <laughs> like the vast majority of albums that came out in the '90s were all like 65 minutes right. long. Like yeah. all of those would have been double albums too if they'd been released 15 years earlier.
0: That's true. Yeah.
1: Either that or the, no, no, this isn't cheating. The 90s was cheating right. by releasing these huge albums on one CD. That's where the cheating was. That's
0: Yeah, that's the case for sure. Because Yeah, yeah that's more accurate. Every CD from 1993 to 2003 is 70 minutes long when it could have easily exactly. been 40 to yeah. 50. But I think this was, you know, because I did, I tried to take out, you know, so you take out the sound collages, you take out some of the instrumentals, And then you're still left, those actually don't take up that much space, so you're still left with like 65 minutes of pretty solid songs. And so then you could take out, you know, some of the ones from other band members, which I didn't want to, because I think those are pretty good. Songs like uh, Mammoth Gardens and Look Away, which Donette does lead vocals on. I think those are great songs. Uh, And then you could maybe, so then you're, then you're picking, at that point you're picking songs you like to remove, which I didn't want to do.
1: Right i do like bringing in other lead vocalists and i guess this gets back to the the conversation that we just had about scott miller's vocals mm-hmm. like when when you have another lead vocalist come in like i, I did appreciate that so
0: yeah and it showed like maybe that,
1: there's something to the wine
0: <laughs> maybe but yeah it was uh, it was refreshing to hear it still sounded like a game theory song but with a different vocalist which i thought was cool yes and the other thing was cool uh wasting the knees, is one of my favorites on here has that little guitar riff at the end, which leads into the next song, uh, Nothing New. And that's, if you're listening to the LP, The Waist and the Knees is the last song on side one, and Nothing New is the first one on side two, so it forms a little bridge over to the next uh, side of the record.
1: I always appreciate moments like that that you experience differently based on the medium that you're listening to it in. Mm Mm-hmm. Like you can, if you are listening to it on CD, like it's just the the flip from one track to another, uh, and you experience it that way. But on on an LP, it's different. You have that you have that break between between one and the next.
0: Yeah, and this one's cool in that it does work both ways, right? It, it makes sense for them to flow together immediately, and it also makes right. sense to then bridge that gap when you are flipping the disc over. So yeah, I, I I ended up liking this one a lot. It. it was one of my favorites, and I had a hard time deciding between it and one other one as as what my favorite was. but I think this one works pretty well for me and the uh, the omnivore re-release has a bonus disc of a ton of different uh, live recordings, demo versions of these songs, including uh, Chardonnay's original version was eight minutes long, which he cut down to the manageable like three and a half four minutes that we hear on the on the album now. But I think, although
1: that was just four minutes of Chardonnay followed by Scott Miller going number nine, number nine, <laughs> yeah. number nine.
0: It's funny though. I think you know I I can definitely picture if Chardonnay did become a big hit for him, like that eight minute version. There's your live closer every time. People would go nuts. Oh, to hear for that. sure, yeah. So that that's what I was thinking about when I was hearing that. But uh, Lolita Nation was critically acclaimed at the time and would retroactively appear on a lot of 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 best-of-the-decade lists, which is kind of some of the first times I heard about it, Uh, but of course didn't elevate them out of that national obscurity they they stuck in. Uh, So after another tour, they went back to CD Studios with Mitch Easter again producing, some additional sessions at uh, different fur studios as well for their fifth studio album, Two Steps from the Middle Ages, released in 1988. Play Rolling with the Moody Girls, and then we will talk about that album.
1: album to me, and we've talked about this with, with previous artists, mm-hmm. felt like the decline. Like this is, okay, we're we're coming to the end of our run and we're still producing stuff, but it's not quite as good. Having said that, Rolling with the Moody Girls is, is a solid track and it's one of several that are still on this album.
0: Yeah, th- this is a lot of solid songs. Rolling with the Moody Girls is one of my favorites. Wyoming is another one of my favorites. I think this one... It is, it does feel a little bit like a decline Only in that, I mean, for one It's not as experiment experimental as Lolita Nation If that's what you're in for It's maybe not quite as poppy as uh, Real Nighttime or Big Shot But I think it's still, I think this band still sounds good together I think this is a much more heavy rock almost sound Than they've done At least, you know, maybe yeah. comparable to some of the heavier rock songs on Lolita but uh, I ended up liking it a lot. I I didn't think it was the sign of a band about to... to, It didn't seem like it was going to be their last album, which it was for a long time, right, to me.
1: Yeah. Although, I mean, is it their last album? Because on the one hand, yes, it's their last album. On the other hand, like, Scott Miller just kept producing music into the 90s under a different name, and he's already, like, switched out the... The makeup of the band several times over the course of this decade. So, like, the Loud Family is the is the name of the band going Mm -hmm. forward. But is that really a a fundamentally different band, or is it just Game Theory under a different name?
0: Yeah, this is. I mean, I imagine if this group had stayed together as is, they would probably make the same songs but with a different lineup, right? I mean, right. It is certainly a continuation of this of the same act because because Scott Miller is the driving force of all of it, right? And he's still, he's he's the front man of both fans. He's the chief songwriter. But yeah, right. I think that this one, it was certainly, you know, they, they never tried to not make hits, right? I mean, they were always making pretty accessible songs, if slightly high-minded mm-hmm. and more literary, as we've said. But I think this one was a bit of a conscious effort to make a more accessible album. And you can see, I can definitely tell a little bit of Scott's frustration at this point, right? With right out of the gate, <laughs> with what the whole world wants, and the picture of agreeability back to back, I feel like those are both yeah. just like, I don't know what you want anymore. It's a song about. See, this is
1: this is the problem. Like, if you're if you're the sort of person who is gonna call your band Game Theory and put soundscapes in your albums and title your songs after obscure references to the most inaccessible James Joyce novels ever written. And then you turn around and you try to make, uh, accessible pop songs that are going to rock to the top of the charts. Like, I don't think you're that artist. Like, (laughs) I think if you try to do that, it's going to come off sounding not ingenuous, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. like, you you kind of do have to be 5 seconds of summer in order to get to the top of the pop charts and like it, it's not that one is better than the other it's just he's not going to make music that's going to go to number 14 like he's mm-hmm. just not
0: yeah yeah i think it i think it's true there's probably some the, people can just inherently sense a disconnect probably if you're if if something doesn't feel genuine to them they'll move on And so, if I think most of these songs are pretty genuine, but if it's something that it doesn't, if it doesn't feel relatable, people aren't going to connect to it, right? Yeah. And so maybe some of this just didn't feel relatable enough.
1: And I mean, I say that and and like think about all the bands that we've talked about already, like Led Zeppelin. They're they're putting obscure references to all kinds of crazy things in their music, and they're going to number fourteen. So I don't know what I'm talking about either.
0: I think. Well, they also balanced it with just that. There's a machismo that I think was appealing for the late '70s, right? I mean, they had yeah. they had sex appeal, for lack of a better term that I don't know that Game Theory has, uh, and then
1: oh, you know they don't. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but also something like R.E.M. I like
1: Scott. I like Scott Miller, but like you can't you you can't really put anyone up against Roger Dalt- uh, uh Roger Daltrey. Um... <laughs> well,
0: him too, I guess
1: him too right uh against against Robert Plant and Jimmy Page and like and com- and try to compete like you right. just can't
0: which i don't know that he did but
1: uh, you know right right the audience is going to But see it, but it helps Zeppelin and that helps the Who too i guess
0: yeah certainly but i don't know what do you what do you think it is about REM that caught fire first or or caught fire <laughs> more because I don't know if I can put my finger I, I on it. I
1: don't know. Like, it, it really is... I, I really think with some of the bands that just kind of take off, like, it. there's just... There's just a spark. Like, a mm-hmm. je ne sais quoi. Like, you can't put your finger on it. There's just something special about this band and the way it comes together and the songwriting and the lyrics and, and the music they make like there's not anything it's not describable or identifiable necessarily mm-hmm. like try to identify why the beatles are the greatest band of all time and why like kids who don't listen to any music made before 2016 when exposed to the beatles they're like oh yeah this is also one of my favorite bands like there's no way to mm-hmm to explain or identify like what the cause of that is it just it it just is
0: yeah i think probably some of it must have to do with the group in general i mean the beatles and rem both were four guys who just knew how to work off of each other and work with each other in a way that even if you even if you didn't know necessarily i guess there's something in the songs that you can sense that they just click with each other and this was a, a constantly changing lineup you know Almost more more so than the fall was even at this period. There's people changing yeah. in this group all the time. I don't know if that went into it or not, but there must be something people can sense about that.
1: That's also a good question. Like, is there a is there a band that changes its lineup like this frequently that actually does take off? I'm thinking Prince. Like, we don't think of Prince as a band, but he's right. got his he's got his backup band. And I mean, Prince is to Prince what Scott Miller is to Game Theory. Like, in terms of being the songwriter and the leaked vocalist and kind of the driving force, but both of them have a band behind them and both of them change the lineups pretty frequently. But Prince sticks in a way that that game theory doesn't necessarily. I don't know.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And certainly, and you could point to probably like we have, uh, you know, when he's with the revolution, the, that's some of the the strongest material, right?
1: That's the best stuff. Yeah.
0: So yeah. I think there is something to having that group environment that just starts meshing that Things just start clicking, and you can tell just from listening to it that things are clicking. Let's see, after touring in support of Two Steps, uh, Scott and well, first of all, Scott and Donette would break up, which would uh, cause her to leave the band and she would start a band of her own called Hex. Uh, Guillaume and Shelley would also leave around this time, and then Gil would suffer a back injury, limiting his ability to play drums. So, Gil wanted to stick around to the band at least, so he decided to move over to guitar and keyboard. And so at this point, Scott calls up a couple old friends to fill out the lineup. Joseph Becker, the former alternate learning drummer, returns to the lineup. And Michael Quercio of The Three O'Clock, which we mentioned earlier, who has kind of been in their orbit this whole time, joins up on the bass. And this foursome uh, starts playing some gigs up and down California, other spots on the West Coast, records some demos, all of which were lost to time until March of 2020, when... Uh, every available recording from that period was compiled onto Across the Barrier of Sound Postscript, which is capping off Omnivore's reissue campaign. I'll play a little bit of their song, My Free Ride, and then we will talk about the compilation.
1: compilation too is is also kind of hit or miss for me partly because there's a variation in the quality of the recordings sure. uh this particular song sounds like a, a completed package mm-hmm. and i think it's fantastic i think it's one of the best songs they've done
0: yeah there are there are four songs on here that are full band demos that are probably the most uh, the most complete songs my free ride take me down to hulu uh inverness and idiot Sun. Uh, and those those are certainly the standouts on here, uh, but not just from quality, but I think they're great songs in general. Uh, but yeah, this is definitely as far as like you said, recording quality is kind of hit or miss. This is this really is just anything they did in 89 and or into early 90 that uh, with that this lineup created together. And it's also the, a very much a transitional point for Scott going between Game Theory and The Loud Family because 11 of the 25 songs on here would show up on The Loud Family's first album as well. So, I mean, he was taking these and he held on to them until that new lineup formed again. But but I think this is cool. This is certainly a cool document for if you are a Game Theory completionist, which if you've made it this far, maybe, maybe you are. But uh, they... I think uh, it's interesting to see how he has been able to still make a pretty consistent sound with all these different lineups. You know, we mentioned that that's partial. Maybe that's part of why it didn't ever take off. But I think he was still the songwriting was still strong enough that you could take different musicians and still make some pretty solid stuff.
1: Yeah, and I mean, like everything that I'm saying about like comparing game theory to like REM and and Let's Up It's not a knock-on game theory. Like it's a good band. It's it's solid from from top to bottom. Like it's a, a lot of really great musicians, good songwriting, all of the pieces kind of mesh well together. It's mm-hmm. just that like it's the it's the difference between like the top amateur and the Olympic athlete. Like there is that kind of indescribable difference and right. I I can't put my finger on it, but it was. It just kind of fascinated me listening. Like, what actually is the difference between this band and an REM? Like, I feel like there is one, but I could not tell you what that difference actually is.
0: Yeah, and I think I'm sure that uh, you know, distribution is a part of it at the very least, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the if all of these records sold between five and fifteen thousand copies and how many were made you know i mean murmur itself sold right. like half a million or something because they were able to make that many for part of it and then of course uh, it also got named album of the year by rolling stone that same year so that's going to help also that helps yeah but so uh, but at the same time you know it's still you know scott was never uh, disappointed by his labels by because they were still giving him a chance that nobody else was going to right so they're right. still getting it out there
1: and it worked i mean or you know, we're still talking about them today. We're uh, like, they're still, they're still popular. They're still influential. So, you know, all the, like everything about the miserable One and, and national obscurity and everything else, like they, they made it, they stuck.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, it is nice now that this, these, all these reissues are coming out, that people can have a better time finding them. Like, I mean, because it's, Right, right. It's easy to be obscure when literally nobody can buy your records. You know. <laughs> But I, I'm thankful that all of these have come out uh, for more people to hear, in- including this one. I think this one is certainly, obviously, don't start with Across the Barrier of Sound because it's you're gonna, it's a lot of demos and home recordings. But I think some of those two, aside from serving as that link to the Loud family, it also hits you know some of Scott's uh, favorite bands. He does a lot of covers on here, like uh, the Beatles, writing the first song. Uh, he does a uh, Alex Chilton cover, a uh, David Bowie cover, I think, is on here yeah so there's a good variety cover of, stuff of too.
1: the cover of the Beatles, uh all my loving like that's a really good cover too,
0: yeah, and it's just him solo with the guitar It's a cool way to start the album, i think
1: again it's it's one guitar and just the voice like that's all you really need,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, and that you know any doubts you had about his voice, I feel like if by, yeah. by this point he's a great singer pretty pretty inarguably, I think, but after this one. Uh, former keyboardist Nancy Becker would briefly join the lineup in 89 to re-record Alternate Learning's Beach State Rocking and Bad Year at UCLA and Sleeping Through Heaven from Blaze of Glory for a compilation called uh, Tinker to Everest to Chance, which was released in 1990, uh, the title of which refers to the 1910 Chicago Cubs and a double play that was accounted in a poem called Baseball's Sad Lexicon. This is all classic, a classic Scott Miller so far. But uh, he would always say that since a double play results in a batter not getting a hit, he thought that it makes the perfect title for a uh, game theory compilation.
1: All right, Scott. <laughs> God. <laughs>
0: yeah, but We get it. Nobody listened to you. <laughs> but uh, Enigma Records would unfortunately fold in 91 and couple that with the fact that Scott and Gil lived in San Francisco while Michael and Joseph lived in L.A. That put an end to game theory as we know it then. Uh, And as I mentioned Scott Would go on to form the band The Loud Family in the 90s Their first album Plants and Birds and Rocks and Things Was released on Alias Records in 1993 They'd go on to release Six more albums and an EP Their final one being 2006's What If It Works During all that time Scott also maintained a job As a computer programmer And ran the Loud Family's website Where he would answer fan mail As part of the Ask Scott column That I mentioned Which is all still up online You can still read All of this correspondence Which is pretty interesting
1: Oh that's awesome Uh,
0: and then in the early 2010s, he began reaching out to a few people for a possible game theory reunion and had been reaching out to even some outside artists to collaborate with, uh, including the Posies' uh, Ken Stringfellow and Amy Mann, who was a self-professed fan of Scott's. Uh, but sadly, in April of 2013, Scott Miller took his own life, leaving behind his wife and their two daughters. And it was obviously a shock to everyone who knew him. The outpouring of grief and support was massive and immediate and there's a fundraiser that was set up by joseph becker in support of his wife and kids which you can actually still donate to which i'll put a link to in the show notes and people mm. have still to this day been donating to this uh fundraiser that's awesome it's raised over sixty thousand uh, as of this recording uh throughout the years scott never stopped writing and after a few years had passed ken stringfellow along with scott's widow christine chambers miller Took all Scott's home demos, made up of hundreds of mostly unfinished thoughts and snippets, and gathered Scott's friends, fans, and collaborators to release uh, one final Game Theory album. uh, Members Nancy Becker, Joseph Becker, Dave Gill, Gil Ray, Susie Ziegler, Donna Thayer, Fred Juhos, Shelley Lafrenette, along with people like Amy Mann, Ted Leo, Peter Buck, Scott Scott Camberg of Pavement, and many more. Uh, Mitch Easter, of course, handled the final mix as well and played on at least one song. And the resulting album, Supercalifragile, was released in August of 2017 and uh, is still available to purchase on Bandcamp if you want to check that
2: out. be the Superman, the man of always on. A creature strong enough to finally feel the things that you could never feel. And baby, you've got me there. I want it to be true that you do it all for me and not for you. No, love.
0: I think it's a, actually really great and is a good final game theory album. It, it's it's much it's not any it's made up of demos, but it is a complete album unlike Across the Barrier of Sound which is just the raw demos. So it's it's very cool to hear both his demos fully fleshed out as well as other voices coming in and interpreting them and and playing on them you know kind of with Scott after the fact. It's pretty cool. Uh, but now let's turn back to that fantastic 80 s run and pick our top five songs so Aaron, why don't you go first with your top five game theory tracks
1: all right number five is a song that we have not mentioned yet but it's another kind of quieter song off of uh, two steps from the Middle Ages Wish I could stand or have
0: mm, that's a good one
1: Number four is Chardonnay, so we've already got that. Number three, nice. I already briefly mentioned it also off of L- L- Lolita Nation. We love you, Carol and Allison. <laughs> Two is Regenus Rain, and number one, also off of Big Shot Chronicles, is I've Tried Subtlety. A couple of others that very that came very close to making the top five. I mentioned my free ride from across the barrier, like that's up there, dripping mm-hmm. with looks from a Lulina Nation. nation. Uh, Waltz the halls always from real nighttime didn't quite make the list, but it's definitely top ten. Like there were, I, I could probably come up with like a really solid like 10 to 15 song greatest hits album for, for game theory and be very content listening to that over and over.
0: Yeah. I I also, I had a top 15 that I ended up making that I had a very hard time trimming down to just five. And then once I did trim it down to five, putting those in any order was also hard. So I think this is, this is what I've got now, but I think, you know, maybe I'll post the the playlist of my top 15 because I think any of those could compete for the top five at any time. But uh, number five, I have uh, Rolling with the Moody Girls from Two Steps. Mm -hmm. Uh, My number four is I've Tried Subtlety from Big Shot Chronicles. I think that is a great song. Uh, Number three for me is Friend of the Family from Real Nighttime. is Waltz the Halls Always from Real Night Time. And number one is Wasting the Knees from Lolita Nation. some of the most overlap we've had, maybe. One? I, well, I guess that's true. If you reach out to the whole 15, <laughs> it's probably 10 of them. But.
1: That, is, that actually is some of the most overlap we've had.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're right. One. Uh, so which album ended up being your favorite?
1: All right, you go first on this one.
0: All right, so there were, like I mentioned, there were two that I was very closely, and really only today finally decided which one was actually number one. Uh, so... Number 2 ended up being Lolita Nation and number 1 mm-hmm. was Real Nighttime.
1: Number 1 is also Real Nighttime for me. Yeah.
0: I think it's fantastic. Uh,
1: with Not Lolita Nation but Big Shot Chronicles is the very very close second. Um mm-hmm. all three of those all three of those albums are very good. Lolita Nation, like I said, more hit and miss just because I think it's a double album and there's there's more content than there necessarily needs to be. But mm-hmm. uh, all three of them are solid. And I think if I went back and listened to Real Nighttime and Big Shot, again, I might have a different order because they're, they're both pretty equally solid. But Real Nighttime is my number one, too.
0: Yeah. For me, Real Nighttime and Lolita were neck and neck. And then right behind them, neck and neck was Big Shot and Two Steps. Those were, those okay. were the two tiers for me, I think. But yeah, I I eventually agreed that I think Lolita, if you're gonna sit down and listen to one, uh, you know, Real Nighttime is just such a concentrated forty-five minutes of pure power pop, you know. Event. Yes. And I think yeah. that's the most fun. And the high points on Lolita are very high, but uh, yeah, here and there it does meander just enough where I was like, okay, it's number two. So next time we are moving on to our last single artist episode of the season. We're going to be listening to every 80s album by The Cure. Uh, After that, we do have a couple special episodes planned before we wrap up the season, so stay tuned for those. Uh, I want to thank Scott Miller, Christine Chambers-Miller, every member of Game Theory over the years, everyone at Omnivore Records for the incredible reissues. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for listening, and thank you, Aaron, for joining me. Thank you. Don't forget, it's never too late to discover great music that's new to you. We'll see you next time. On the blog post for this episode, I wanted to highlight some of my favorite bonus tracks on these Omnivore reissues, so head over to active.wordpress.com for a list of my picks for the best demos, covers, and other previously unreleased songs available on these great albums. Follow us on Twitter at AndyHearsIt, Facebook.com slash AndyHearsIt, email me at AndyHearsIt at gmail.com, rate and review the show, tell your friends, let me know too what your favorite 80s tunes are, which 80s albums I still need to hear. I also want to ask everyone out there what your favorite hidden gem bands are. Bands like Game Theory that not enough people know about. Thanks again, and see you next time.